Well, today we are taking a break from our series looking at the seven deadly sins that we've been going through the last couple of weeks. And we're going to take a look at the theme of today for all Christians everywhere, which is the resurrection. Easter Sunday is all about the empty tomb. Jesus died on Good Friday. The disciples waited for Holy Saturday. And then on Easter Sunday, they were surprised to find the tomb empty. Today, I think for many of us in our church, this might have a fresh meaning and a brand new longing that wasn't there previously and that we weren't expecting. As one of our longest tendered, I think the longest tenured member of our church, Jeanette Tutel, very suddenly went to be with the Lord on Good Friday. Jeanette was just at our last membership meeting in the video call, and I got to see her a few weeks ago as well, and she was so excited about the future that God was leading our ministry towards. And so this weekend, I can tell you, I know I have, and I know many of you have felt the sting of death. But how appropriate for Good Friday and Holy Saturday. Good Friday being that day when the disciples watched a loved one of theirs crucified. They felt the sting of death in their life. And then Holy Saturday is a day we don't really talk about that often, but it was the day of waiting, of waiting and being unsure, of waiting and feeling the sting, sitting with the sting for a while. It was the day between death and resurrection. It was the day when it felt like death had won. And oftentimes when we have loved ones who pass away, that's what it feels like, doesn't it? It feels like death has won. We feel the, the effects of the curse of sin all over again. That Saturday, the disciples did not know that Sunday was coming. But we know that Sunday is coming and is indeed here. We're celebrating it now. And so what happened on that Sunday? And how might it give us hope today, especially if we are in this state of mourning on Easter, where even the thought of celebration is maybe a little bit foreign to our ears? That's what we're going to talk about this morning. And we're going to talk about it through uh, a chapter of scripture, 1 Corinthians 15. So if you have a Bible, you can open it up to 1 Corinthians 15. We're going to go through this passage, um, skipping along like rock, uh, like a rock on water, um, not necessarily digging deep in a couple of places. We're going to skip over a couple of verses at a time, but we're going to get a, a glimpse of the whole argument that Paul makes in this chapter. And it is fascinating. And I think has a, has a great deal to teach us today. First off, a bit of context. Who is this letter of the Bible written to? This is, this is written by the Apostle Paul to the church in Corinth. And he's writing it because the church in Corinth had heard the gospel, but didn't live according to the gospel. They had received the Holy Spirit, but did not, um, did not care to be transformed by that spirit. They were saying, we 
we're free to do whatever we want. And they, they certainly live like it. They, they abuse their freedom in Christ for, the, for, their, for themselves. And they, um, in Paul's words, lack love for each other. And so when we get to 1 Corinthians 15, now Paul's going to talk about a very specific teaching that was being taught in the Corinthian church that he wanted to refute. And it's about the resurrection of Jesus and the resurrection of the dead, maybe more generally, actually. Some taught that all of the benefits of faith are already received. Some taught that anything that you could possibly receive by faith, you would have been already given. So transformation and new life, it was already happening in the here and now, they would say, which led them to deny physical resurrection. They denied that people would rise from the dead at some point in the future. Or either that maybe it, it won't, it will happen, but it's going to be spiritual. It's not going to be physical. So there are all sorts of these different teachings floating around. And, you know, we're far removed from Corinth, but I think we can fall into the same type of thinking. We can fall into the same type of thinking of like, well, are we really going to be physically raised from the dead? Is all this really going to happen? How is it going to happen? And all the questions that maybe these Corinthians were asking, we start to ask as well. And the distance between Jesus' resurrection today certainly helps with that in some sense. So Paul looks at everything happening in the Corinthian church, looks at this false teaching, and, and argues against it using a core theological claim that he then talks about the implications for. So he says, this is what is true, and here are the implications of that because it is true. And he starts with Jesus being raised from the dead. So you can see in verse 1 of chapter 15, Now, brothers and sisters, I want to remind you of the gospel I preached to you, which you received and on which you have taken your stand. By this gospel you are saved if you hold firmly to the word I preach to you, otherwise you have believed in vain. Now this is a fascinating beginning because he's essentially saying, um, he's, he's actually not saying, I want to remind. I'm not sure that's the best translation because, because there is this sense of, re, of a very gentle rebuke on Paul's part in that, in that phrasing. So actually he's, he's saying, I, I am declaring to you, or I am informing you, I'm informing you anew of these things. I am informing you anew of the gospel that I've already preached to you. I'm informing you anew of the gospel that you recited, of the gospel on which you have taken a stand. The implication of just that first verse is that he's gently, Paul is gently rebuking this Corinthian church for forgetting at least parts of the gospel. And if you forget parts of the gospel, you're going to end up distorting the whole. So it's really important to line up the, the key points, which is why Paul then goes into uh, this really interesting couple of verse description of here is the gospel that's been proclaimed to you in verses three through eight. He says, Jesus has died for our sins according to the scriptures. Jesus was buried. 
Jesus was risen on the third day, according to the scriptures, and then appeared to 5,000 people, some of whom have died, but others who are still alive and you could go speak to them. And then as and then he's he also appeared to James and to the apostles and last of all, Paul. So there's a couple of really interesting things in there. First off, Jesus died, was buried, and rose again. That is the core message of Christianity. If we are listening to somebody who doesn't preach those things, who doesn't preach that Jesus died for our sins according to the scriptures, that he didn't that he wasn't buried and that he didn't rise again on the third day according to the scriptures. If we're listening to them and we hear that, run away as fast as you can. Because the thing they're teaching is not Christian. They may call themselves a Christian, but the thing that they're teaching is anti-Christ. By the very definitions that Paul says, this is the tradition that, that's being passed down to you of what the gospel is. So first, that's, that's first off. Secondly, notice how Paul has tied in living history at their time into what he's describing. So he says Jesus died, he was buried, and then he rose again, and he appeared to people, and some of them you can still go talk to. He's basically inviting them to test what he's saying. He's saying, go, here, like there's tons of them out there, you can go and find them, they will tell you all about it. And so we can have, at least for the Corinthians, they, said, they would say we can have a steady, firm faith in this because we know the people who saw him. And that builds a, a history that actually extends out and, and makes this one of the most historically reliable events in all of human history, in fact. It's actually one of the... One of the core proofs of Christianity. I think one of the core arguments for it is the, is the historicity of the resurrection because there's because everything in terms of the, the historical elements all point to being an event that actually happened. And this is part of it. There were just so many people who were, who were quite open to talk about it. And who Paul even says, you can go and see them. Most of whom are still living, though some have fallen asleep, he says. And so he describes this core of what the gospel is. He says it's, it's reliable. It's not a random message that was made up. It is reliable. Go speak to your friends because they saw it. And then in verse 11, he says, Whether then it is I or they, this is what we preach, and this is what you believed. This is what we preach. This is what you believed. So trust this. This is the message that you've already heard. And so trust it. This is the message that's been preached by all the apostles so we can trust it. This is fundamental to our faith. But then he goes on to pivot to asking, okay, so you say that the dead aren't raised. Well, let's back up a little bit. Let's say Christ didn't rise from the dead. This is a popular accusation against the church in, in, in contemporary times. Jesus didn't rise from the dead. It's impossible. If Christ didn't rise, Paul says in verse 13, our faith is useless. 
and our hope is based on falsehood or delusion. We have no hope. But the proclamation of the entire early church, which is unprecedented for Messiah movements of this kind, whose leaders would die and the leadership would just shift to the next person. For the Jesus movement, the Messiah died. And then afterwards, everyone said, actually, he rose again and he's still leading us by the power of his spirit. This is, this is unprecedented. And even, more, and even more so that they saw him and he, he appeared to people both inside and outside of the church. The proclamation of the entire early church is what? He is risen. He is risen indeed. And so how does Jesus' resurrection give us hope today? Is where Paul starts to, starts to go down that rabbit trail. From verses 12 through 34, he says if, essentially he makes this argument, if Jesus has been raised from the dead, we will be raised from the dead as well. If Jesus has been raised from the dead, believers in him will be raised with him as well. And so we can expect to meet Jeanette and Judy, two members who have passed away in this just the past couple of months, as well as all of our others, other loved ones who had, who had committed themselves to Jesus. And how can we be confident of that? It is because, as this passage talks about, Jesus is the first fruits of God making all things new. In verse 20, Christ has indeed been raised from the dead, the first fruits of those who have fallen asleep. For since death came through a man, the resurrection of the dead also comes through a man. For it is in Adam all die, so in Christ we will all, all will be made alive. But each in turn, Christ the first fruits, then when he comes, those who belong to him. Jesus' resurrection is the first fruits of God making all things new. We might not be um, we're not an agrarian culture, so we might not recognize exactly the implications of calling Jesus the first fruit is. We probably have an idea that it's the, the, the first yield of a harvest, which is true, but it's also a foretaste of the harvest that is to come. So it's a foretaste or a promise of the things that will be coming down the line. And so because, Jesus, because, because believers share in Jesus's very life, we can expect to share in his resurrected life as well. And we can have confidence in it because of his resurrection. Because Christ has been risen, we will rise too. And then the question is, when is it going to happen? And this is a question the early church really struggled with. When is it going to happen? We've already read, the first fruits happen first, and then the harvest happens Second, when Christ comes again, we'll experience the harvest. We have to remember, harvests don't happen immediately. If you experience this, this, this first fruits, you don't then immediately go and turn and harvest everything. That would, you'd actually just be cutting everything down. There is a time of waiting between the first fruits and the harvest, and that's the time that we're in now. 
what is happening during this waiting. The Spirit of God is building the kingdom, is building the church, and inviting people to be saved by faith in Jesus so that they can experience the first fruits that Jesus' resurrection promised. But we're told one day, when the end will come, verse 24, the end will come when he hands over the kingdom of over the kingdom to God the Father after he has destroyed all dominion, authority, and power for he must reign until he has put all enemies under his feet the last enemy to be destroyed is death the last enemy to be destroyed is death Jesus one day will hand over the kingdom to the Father and, and we can and, and one day we know for certain that death is going to be destroyed. It's going to be the last enemy of God's that is destroyed. The cross and the resurrection that we remember today and over this past weekend, Good Friday and today, those are the, that's the event in history when death is defeated, when the power of death is defeated over a life. But death isn't destroyed yet. No, God's judgment on the judgment day will destroy death. And on that day, death will be no more. And when we are raised, we're raised to new life in Christ. And so when this resurrection happens, when we experience the harvest that has been promised in the first fruits of Jesus' resurrection, what are our bodies going to be like? What kind of life are we going to have? And we can think of this in a really in, in, a, in a sort of dualistic sense that comes a little bit from from um, also well actually all sorts of different places. I'm not gonna I'm not gonna try to pin it down. Paul knows that these types of, these types of questions are asked as well. He responds in this letter to people who it seems were asking those questions to mock the church, to mock the Christian faith, to mock Jesus's resurrection and the resurrection of the dead. So they would ask, how will God raise us? Or what kind of bodies are we going to have? Not actually wanting an answer to the questions, but wanting to make fun of those beliefs. And Paul is really interesting. <laughs> he basically says, how, how will God raise us? Well, by his power, duh. He's God. Of course he can do it. <laughs> and what kinds of bodies? That's where the rest of this entire chapter, it, it, that's, that's the answer that he's trying, that's the answer he's trying to give just to that one question. And his very basic response, to break it down really simply, is, can't you see it in nature? What kind of body are we going to have? He says, well, it's, it's a bit complicated, but we can see the echoes of it in how God has designed the world. And again, he's going to use all sorts of agrarian metaphors throughout these parts. But let me just read through the core section of, these, uh, of, this, of this part of the chapter. Someone will ask, how are the dead raised and what kind of body will they come? How foolish! What you sow does not come to you 
does not come to life until it dies. Pardon me. When you sow, you do not plant the body that you will be, but just as a seed, perhaps, of wheat or of something else. But God gives it a body as he has determined, and to each kind of seed he gives its own body. Not all flesh is the same. People of one kind of flesh, animals of another, birds and fish another. There are also heavenly bodies, and there are earthly bodies. But the splendor of the heavenly bodies is one kind, and the splendor of the earthly bodies is another. Now that's really interesting. Sometimes we think of you know, the heavenly bodies are better than the earthly bodies. Paul says they're actually they they're, they're they're splendid. They're glorious in their own ways that actually can't be compared as easily as that. And so we might start to think, well, when we're raised from the dead, the body that we have now is going to be totally cast away, and we're going to have the a, a fully spiritual body. And that's Paul's going to Paul's correcting that type of thinking and saying, oh, hold on. We need to we need to we need to pause on that because there is something splendid about the bodies that we have that God isn't just going to throw away at the resurrection. And so it will be in verse forty two with the resurrection of the dead. The body that is sown is perishable, but it is raised imperishable. It is sown in dishonor, it is raised in glory, it's sown in weakness, it is raised in power, it is sown a natural body, it is raised a spiritual body. And so we get to the core of his argument. And Paul is pointing to nature and pointing to the seeds in that small section of verses, in that small pericope, and saying, here is what the natural world teaches us about what we can expect our resurrected bodies to be like. First off, we should expect that death will lead to life because that is built into the very fabric of creation. He says it right in that first verse, what you sow does not come to life until it dies. Put a seed in the ground, the seed has to die before anything comes out of it. So if you wanna grow an apple tree, you actually have to plant that apple seed, it has to die, and from there, an entire tree grows out of that one little seed. Put the seed for wheat into the ground. It has to die, and then out from that death springs an explosion of life. And even more than that, leaves fall to the ground, they die, they become fertilizer that gives the ability for new life. There are some trees in Canada, if you can believe this, that will only seed if they're lit on fire. This is what some um, some pine cones. That's what they're. That's what that's what they hold. Pine cones hold the seeds, and the only way to open the seeds is to heat that pine cone up in what amounts to a forest fire. The tree has to die before the seeds can be planted. Even death leading to life is built into the fabric of creation. That's the first thing. He wants us to know the second is that seeds don't go into the ground and then grow up into just bigger seeds you don't put an acorn into the ground and 20 years later find a giant acorn that would be ridiculous no you put an acorn in the ground 
And 20 years later, you have an oak tree. You put an apple seed into the ground, 20 years later, you're going to find an apple tree. Caterpillars don't go into their cocoons and come out just a different kind of caterpillar. They come out as butterflies. Seeds don't go into the ground and come out as seeds. We will return to dust, but to dust we will not rise. The first man was of the dust of the earth, it says in verse 47, but the second man is of heaven. Our resurrected bodies will be different than the bodies that we have now. They're going to be heavenly. However, there is also a continuity from seed to plant. The DNA of the seed allows the, the growth of that oak tree. You have to have a certain DNA set within, a, within the seed for wheat to be able to have that wheat grow. The same is true for us. We, are, we have been given physical bodies by God, the seeds that will grow into our heavenly bodies, that will be transformed, transfigured into our heavenly bodies. They contain within them something that God is going to bring forth into the new creation when he transforms them into our heavenly bodies. And we see this with Jesus's resurrected body. When Jesus is resurrected, he goes to all sorts of different people, but there are two disciples he, he uh, runs into on, on the road to Emmaus and he walks with them and he eats with them and they don't realize who he is until they have communion. He breaks bread and drinks of the cup and they say, oh, that's your Jesus. And he disappears. There's something about his body that was unrecognizable, although he was still recognizable in it. He still had the wounds in his hands, we're told in scripture. He still had the wounds in his feet and the wound in his side. But there was something different about him. That's what we can expect. Something, something that is the same but different. In the exact same way that that, that, that little seed for an oak tree is sort of all the potential of the oak tree, but it's not the oak tree. It has all the DNA that will give rise to this grand thing, but it's not there yet. So too with our bodies now. The seed of our body will give way to the tree of our heavenly bodies. And they will be our bodies. But instead of being perishable, they're going to be imperishable. Before, but instead of being um, dishonored in all sorts of ways, that's essentially stricken by sin, they are going to be raised in glory, raised in holiness. Instead of being weak, they are going to be strong. And instead of being natural, they're going to be spiritual. Which is to say that they are going to be bodies that are appropriate for living in the new heavens and the new earth. We're told in scripture that one day God is going to bring heaven and earth colliding together and it's going to be the new heavens and the new earth and that is where we will dwell with him 
forever. Well, we need new bodies to be able to live in that, in, in that environment. It's really, it's, it's like an environmental adaption. We need a bo bodies that are appropriate for that. And what bodies are appropriate? Bodies that are imperishable, that are glorified, that have the power, that, that have power in the spirit and that are spiritual. They're not totally new bodies. They are just bodies that have been transfigured to be able to approach the throne of grace. And so all of this means that death is not an obstacle to resurrection. It is essential for it. Death is not an obstacle to resurrection. It is essential for it. But one day, even death will be defeated. And on that day, we will be able to say, along with Paul in this chapter in verse 55, where, O oh, death, is your victory? Where, O oh, death, is your sting? But until that day comes, we can have hope. Because Jesus is risen and those who trust in him will be risen too. And this hope does not take the sting of death away today, but it can be a balm on the wounds of loss that death inflicts upon us, giving us hope for the day when Christ returns. And so on this Resurrection Sunday, May you trust in Jesus for the forgiveness of your sins. May you receive Christ's life by the power of his Holy Spirit. May the promise of Jesus' resurrection, which is a promise that you will be resurrected and that other believers will be resurrected as well, may that be a balm to your soul. And may we look forward to death's destruction and Jesus' return. Maranatha, come Lord Jesus soon. Amen.